Hi, thanks for finding us. We are the Meet Hershey's Payments Podcast. We interview influential female thought leaders in Asia Pacific, where we empower innovation by rethinking diversity. In this first episode, we're sitting down with Tessa Vijaya from Sendit. She's the CEO and co-founder. I am Camilla Bullock. And I am Linda Stanievich. We hope you will enjoy the show. This podcast is part of the Meet Her, She Knows Payments program, which is a collaboration between the forward-thinking innovative payments businesses, ThinkShareCare, and the Emerging Payments Association Asia. And this episode is brought to you by PayPal. So welcome, Tessa. We are absolutely delighted to have you here. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, hopefully it'll be a fun conversation. Yeah, I think so. And, and thinking back, it was quite fun how we met the first time. So we had gone online already uh, and it was uh, on a conference and you ended up on my panel when you weren't supposed to be there. But we had a good conversation and I looked up Send It afterwards and I've been keep on looking you up uh, since because it's such an inspirational journey. I think it would be an understatement to say that you are a successful entrepreneur because you are more than so you the first female co-founder to become the unicorn uh, for Indonesia, which is absolutely fantastic and a celebration in itself. And also this in less or about five years, I think. So, so maybe just tell us a little bit about your journey and how you come to where you are today. Yeah, definitely. So maybe I'll start out with a little bit about Zendit. We're a B2B payments company. What we do is provide payment infrastructure for a bunch of merchants in Indonesia and actually now Philippines so that if they want to accept payments online or make payments online digitally, we can do so uh, without human intervention, all via APIs. So very exciting, sexy stuff. Now a little bit about me. Uh, I'm born and bred uh, Indonesian. I actually grew up in a very small town, so really, really far away from the tech world that I'm in now. Went overseas for a little bit to study, came back home to really want to do something in the country and make a difference. Started working in a private equity fund instead. I know a little bit of a detour there, but throughout my journey, realized that entrepreneurship was something that's super interesting to me. So went on to co-founds ended. Oh, that, that's really interesting, especially that piece from being, uh, is it right that you were a private equity in Silicon Valley? Oh, no, actually, uh, I covered Southeast Asia market and was based mostly in Indonesia. Ah, oh, fantastic, fantastic. So how did you take that jump from being safe in, in a private equity, a really budding, good career, to take the step out and be an entrepreneur in a sector that it's not just, it's not like starting a shop or anything, it's high tech and high demand? Yeah, so I mean, when I first started out uh, in private equity, I knew nothing about it, by the way. I was extremely naive having come in from, you know, my background was I studied political philosophy. I thought I'd go on and work for an NGO, um, but they gave me a chance. They were like, hey, there's something interesting in, in the country, in Indonesia. In fact, this was one of the first homegrown private equity funds in the country. So I was really excited about that. But as I moved on on that journey, I started meeting a lot of entrepreneurs and a lot of them had some really exciting stories. For example, there was one founder uh, of this company that we were going to invest in. Her dad started this company and he started out by collecting cardboards in dump sites and recycling that. And he went on to growing uh, the company to manufacturing 
FMCG packaging. So I thought that was super interesting. Somewhere along the line, though, I started getting to know a bunch of tech companies. At that time, it was mostly e-commerce players. And I was like, this is super cool. This seems like something I really want to be in. And that was really the start of me discovering what startups are all about. One of my friends introduced me to Moses, who's one of the co-founders at Zendit. He, you know, obviously had met the other boys uh, at Berkeley before coming to Indonesia. Uh, sold me on the mission and I was like, all right, I'm in, let's go. Ah, that's interesting. It's often those like banana peel moments, I call them, that it's, it's something is just there and then with one person. And then it's momentum and you never really think about that you're going to go away and start a big tech firm that's going to do cross-border payments and be a unicorn. But it's just working on that momentum, I think. Yeah, I mean, look, when we started out, we were at a house. I don't, I mean, of course we had big dreams about, you know, taking over the market and maybe even one day, even bigger dreams of going regional. But at the time, it felt like a bunch of kids having fun or a bunch of friends having fun in a little house. Um, I remembered a little suburb and we just wanted to build cool stuff. So that was really, really exciting. Yeah, it's that pinch to arm moment when you're looking back and did this actually happen? Yeah, that's very true. That is so interesting. And especially with your journey from the country and into becoming this super entrepreneur. Very inspiring. Yeah, we recently had this roundtable with you, Tessa, where you were a guest speaker, where we talked about payment risk reward acuity for merchant onboarding with some of the peers in the payments industry. And one of the things that surprised Camille and I was that all of you were using your own analytics and your own platform and you were building them in-house, not using vendors. So we just thought we'd ask about that. Is that because there is no good providers or why do you think that's the case? Yeah, I think, look, uh, I can only speak for our company and observing some others who, who play in Southeast Asia because that's what I'm most familiar with. But, um, you know, when we're talking about Southeast Asia, it's a, a very interesting place to navigate. There aren't many things or many information that are centralized. For example, KYC information, other types of payment information. So a lot of time we really have to stitch together uh, information that we get from third-party provider to get a more accurate um, understanding of who a merchant is. I mean, if you're thinking about um, Indonesia, most payments are done through APMs, which is alternative payment methods, rails. So through non-card methods, what this means is that we don't get that centralized view of who a merchant is or who an end user is that you get from cards because cards is, is pretty much available around the world. So you can ping their APIs of you know, MasterCard and Visa and understand who a merchant is. In a place like Indonesia, a lot of merchants, for example, are still individuals, right? If you talk about SMEs, they're, you know, some of my my friends who are deciding to sell on Instagram or their, you know, mom and pop shops, they don't even have companies. So how do we know if this person exists or if the company exists or if the merchant itself is who they say they are? Are they really selling shoes uh, and not really, you know, selling other things that are not legal or are they actually using the platform for fraudulent activities. We don't know this. So this is why we have to work a little bit harder and build something internally that's a little bit more precise. Mm. But it seems like the colleagues you have in other countries are doing similar things anyway. Like they have KYC, they got some automation, but they're still building it. Is it because it's still a, such an evolving space, like the innovation of like how payments are done and just keep changing or why do you think that yeah, is that's, yeah that's a really good question look i think a lot of about payments is we start to see patterns and we start to understand behavior when we process more payments 
So I don't think many other companies are going to be willing to share that information about transactions going through their rails. Um, this is, I think, another reason why we want to build something internally ourselves, right? When a merchant starts transacting on our platform, we start seeing that pattern and we start to flag them depending on what kind of transactions they're doing, basket size and all that good stuff. But I think um, a lot of third party providers will provide a piece that is useful to inform us of who a merchant is. But there's nothing like understanding our own set of information as well in order to flag us if a merchant is real or not, if you know what they're declaring to be is correct or not. If that makes sense. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I guess it almost becomes a competitive advantage how mo- how much more data you collect and you work on it. So you don't want to share it with all your competitors. I, I understand that. Was it something from-, from your perspective that stood out for you during that session? Yeah, I mean, I was actually surprised that everybody was building their own rails as well. I think that that's kind of cool. And, you know, from my perspective, it's great that we're going in the right direction and send it. Um, the other thing that I think was was exciting that was discussed was things like understanding who a merchant is doesn't only happen during onboarding. It can happen before that, during the marketing cycle. I think someone brought that up and I was like, oh, that's a really interesting uh, way to look at things. Thinking about onboarding, assessing risk of a certain merchant. Yeah, it can start much earlier during the marketing cycle. And um, yeah, super important, I think, for us to take into consideration as we build out our merchant risk engine further. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. So just expand the value chain further. You used a really good quote in the session, also this from Mark Zuckerberg, that in, uh, we'll see if I get it right, but in the fast-changing world, or well, the only way to set for failure is to not to take risk. That is not word by word. But anyway, we can see the essence of it. And I've been pondering about this and pondering about the session in general, that that innovation risk trade-off, and we also have what we often talk about is the trade-off between regulation and innovation in countries. So, so just a few questions around that. That this, how do you think about it? Like, especially if we look at Indonesia, Philippines, there is such a huge market and so big opportunity to scale up and take more customers. So, is it actually worth to lower the risk barriers a lot and and sort of hope that the the bell curve will save you from the risk if i'm putting it that way well i think you know i think i think we can't really approach this from a, a more traditional perspective what i mean is a lot of people in these more traditional markets so start thinking about okay if we want to understand who a merchant is let's collect more documents let's let's compare what they're putting in versus what's in the ID card, for example. I think that's a, an oversimplified way of looking at things. I think there are other ways where we can understand merchants from a tech perspective. And sometimes it can be a little bit scary. You know, when, when someone comes to your website, for example, it's very likely that someone's able to track everything from the device you're using, where you're you're coming from, right? What time of the day it is, what kind of keyboard is you're setting, um, what kind of operating system. So, so that can be... I guess, used for um, not so great things, but when it comes to assessing risk, that can be very useful uh, for us as well. The other thing is, in terms of lowering that risk barrier to onboard more merchants, I think that's definitely very doable by then moving towards um, transaction monitoring, moving towards monitoring the merchant while they are in your platform throughout the whole journey and understanding the pattern of behavior when they're you know, using your, your payment systems and whatever other products that you have. I think that'll give you a more wholesome picture of who this merchant is. And I think it's gonna help merchants 
like the small mom and pop shops to be able to use your platform. So more inclusive in the beginning, because, uh, you know, they may not have all the right paperwork, but they are legitimate, right? So I'm a big believer in that. I think that any sort of policy, any sort of builds need to be seen in a more wholesome manner. And that takes into account the whole journey of a merchant in using your product. I think that's going to be the way we can help these underserved markets to be able to transact online as well. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It's a big bottleneck for financial inclusion, the the onboarding and actually have the document and the data. And it was interesting after the session, Linda and I talked, looking forward to the next roundtable we have is going to be about AI and payments and how can we ever lay those two topics. And we almost had like a fight about where does pattern and behavior and data analytics end and where does that AI and payments begin? So how can we know what we don't know and how how do we figure it out? So so I don't have the answer to that, but it's definitely going in that pattern. But just to pick up on another thing, and maybe you can talk a little bit about this uh, to share for our listeners, is this about referrals. I find that very interesting in, in how you're trying to get referrals from already customers and how that could speed up the, the customer onboarding. Can you just elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah, I mean, again, that was one of the more exciting things I wanted to to discuss and see feedback from others. I think it's about having solutions that's slightly outside the box. We're operating in a market that's very social where word of mouth matters. So why not use referrals to track good merchants and also to track bad merchants? So if someone's using a referral code and the particular merchant who's transacting online is a legitimate, you know, chili sauce uh, seller who was only on Instagram who's cooking in their homes. They live in an area where maybe there's not a lot of help in, in getting the paperwork for the business. So they just do it as an individual. If that person is referring to other friends, it's very likely that the merchant's going to be legitimate. But you know, sometimes when a merchant's fraudulent in a very social place like Indonesia, they'll also be sharing all these codes, right? We can just say, hey, discount for this referral code. And I'm sure um, you know, Indonesians love discounts. Uh, even fraudulent merchants will probably use it. That, and that's a way for us to detect uh, fraudulent merchants as well. So I think out of the box thinking like this is what's needed in a, an opaque market like Indonesia and the rest of Southeast Asia. So you also talked about in terms of gathering information early and almost like really tracking exactly what people are doing. In terms of Privacy Act laws in Indonesia, you know, is that causing a barrier for you to utilize data? What does that look like? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot about user consent and, and obviously security of information. I think um, a lot of our regulators still care more about the end user rather than the merchant themselves. And I think the reasoning is because, you know, a merchant comes on our platform and sort of makes an agreement business to business. So I think the government is a lot more comfortable with that. If you have the consent from the merchant to track, then that's fine. Um, End user obviously is a little bit different. You know, I think Indonesia is really good at protecting the end user information. There are quite strict laws around that and that we abide with, obviously. But yeah, in terms of on the merchant side, I think um, as long as we don't share that information outside of the company without consent, for us to be able to use that as part of our engine it is not really an issue. Yeah, okay, that's great. And that would be really valuable for you to be able to use as much data as possible. So we might move on and talk a little bit about the future of payment <laughs> and how that will come to life. So 
from our perspective, we're trying to gather all this prediction from clever people like yourself in terms of what payment would look like 2030. So across five key pillars, politic and regulation, economics, social, technology and operations, those are the five pillars that we sort of distinguish. I'd like to ask you, Tessa, what are some of your predictions? Yeah, wow, that's a very heavy topic. <laughs> it's a big my, question. My <laughs> yeah. um, I think I think definitely, um, you know, some sort of centralized currency by the central bank. That's something that everyone's trying to develop. Uh, I guess 2030 is not that far away. That's in eight years. But I'm pretty sure in 10, 15 years, that's something that's going to be in market. I think in Europe, in parts of Europe that already exists, you know, and that's part of the blueprint of our central bank as well. So I think being on the lookout for that is going to be really interesting. Can I have a question on that? So, so what's interesting in Europe, they obviously have the euro, uh, which they introduce, a monetary union. Some of the drawback of that is monetary policy it becomes quite difficult to run the economics like in that country. So it's interesting case study, isn't it? Like how would it work to have a central currency and how would you make that work in terms of how you can provide monetary policy to run the country? Is that something that you think would... You still believe that it could be a central currency? <laughs> uh, I mean, central currency from each country, I think, yes, is definitely very possible, right? If the central bank in Indonesia decides to make a digital currency tomorrow and they're able to adopt that technology, then I don't see why not. I don't think it will happen tomorrow, tomorrow, because I think there are other lower-hanging fruits to solve for the government as well as for the private sector. But I do think that that is something that's extremely possible going forward. If you're talking about closer to now, I guess, you know, five to eight years from now, I think you're going to start seeing a lot more consolidation. I think regulators are going to start to try to, to create more interoperable systems. Uh, we're already seeing this with, you know, the QR code standards by the central bank. We're seeing this with what we call GPN. So I guess it's kind of like the Visa and MasterCard version of Indonesia. So consolidating debit cards through the central bank's rails. We're seeing this, them helping out in disbursements as well, real-time disbursements. So where, whereas before it was, I think real-time was either two hours or six hours. Uh, now the central bank is providing services that are instant. So that's, again, super exciting. So we're going to start seeing a lot of that push, I think, from the regulatory side which should help the consumers uh, to make payments cheaper and more accessible to those who are already in the bank sector or those who are already able to access these payments. I think the, the more tricky part to solve is how do we deal with unbanked, right? How do we solve for the unbanked? Indonesia is extremely complex and Southeast Asia is extremely complex. There are, I think, something like 23,000 islands in the whole Southeast Asia. And 17,000 of those islands are in Indonesia. So you've got people living in islands with no Wi-Fi, you know, possibly no, no network connection to a mobile network. How are we going to get those guys to move to digital payments? I think that's what's super interesting. Yeah, so there is more the inhabitant, is more infrastructure and access to it. So interesting. Especially when, when we often try to look at the, it with a regional lens. And it's just so, it's so important that we're talking interoperability regional, especially when we're looking at e-commerce and that whole trend. But then on the other hand, we're starting in so different layers. I mean, Australia is very card heavy and bank heavy, 
so it will we have so much more legacy to take a jump over and then you look at other countries indonesia and philippines are not as legacy having you're starting on the digital end but it doesn't really help it's still what you're saying interoperability is so important but but how do we build those standards and not just standards sometimes it's just directives or or that we know that we're aiming in in the right way do is that does that come up in the house with you when you're talking about where are you going next and how do you know what the standards or interoperability application services are yeah i mean definitely that that's one of the reasons why we're going regional a lot of our merchants say hey your apis are fantastic um we want to use your services you know in other markets as well um so actually what we do i mean this is a little bit about interoperability really but what we do is try to have one apis and enable merchant to access us in di- different regions where we operate so i think that's that's very exciting in a sense we're helping in standardizing payments in these markets and um we're helping um also the local partners to be able to lift that standard so that they understand the needs of of more global merchants or regional merchants. Do we do you have anything else in terms of the future outlook that you like to mention Tessa? Uh yeah, definitely. Look, I think there are many many more <laughs> digital banks coming uh in the market in Southeast Asia. So I think you're going to see a lot of push, a lot more push for transactions to be mobile first. I do think that um we can't forget about the offline sector and yes, I agree Camilla with what you're saying. while most of southeast asia skip cards altogether i think we're probably going to have to come back to that because you know yes probably transactions in country like in indonesia we can move towards qr code so payments through a mobile phone um scan the qr code make that payment but if you want to travel overseas i think it will still be very card based so i think we cannot ignore that as well and while that may seem less sexy less of an innovation i think uh getting a good debit card rail together is also extremely extremely important in markets like Southeast Asia where you know not a lot of people have access to cards or banking it's it's a few things that conversations always comes back to and one is digital identity and data we can't really go anywhere in any payments conversation or it almost feels in life now without talking about that digital identity and what it would enable specifically if we're talking where we as uh, as individuals or companies are active to not having to do and fill in the same things again but then over the last i would say the last maybe 12 months in my role the interoperability between domestic schemes and touched on that was what we first talked about and now it's the real time payments networks because there's so many real time payments networks coming to live across our region what would that enable what would it enable in the innovation end and and what will it also enable for what we're saying the the smaller merchants So Tessa what do you think what well, if we would actually really hook up those if we're looking at real time payments that we've seen between Indonesia and Thailand and Singapore what is the biggest benefit for your customers if something like that would come through Yeah I mean imagine if you're a global e-commerce player and you can enable uh, people to shop from different markets in Southeast Asia who for example don't have cards they do have bank accounts and they can pay through QR code or through bank transfer or by a pull from a bank account i think that would be extremely exciting and imagine for all these um end users who don't have bank accounts maybe they only have e-wallets and to enable them to shop online to be able to access goods from all over the world 
I think um, for our merchants, that's going to be extremely exciting because you don't want to reduce access to your products just because you cannot accept that form of payment. And if you look at Southeast Asia, payments are still extremely fragmented. You know, very few people use credit cards. Some people use debit cards, but debit cards, I think, in, in, in Southeast Asia sometimes are limited in its usage online. There are all sorts of limits you have to navigate on your app or whatever else, depending on regulation. Then you've got people who only have access to e-wallets or who mostly use e-wallets. So I think it's going to be really, really interesting to be able to have that interoperability for our regional or global merchants. So if we're looking at innovation across the, the payments value chain, what do you see? And secondly, what has really impact or changed your product and service model? I think it's definitely uh, this concept of the QR code. You know how it's been really real is I hadn't been able to go to Singapore for two years because of COVID. Before COVID, when you go to a hawker center, so these small food stalls, you'd have to pay cash. There was no way of paying by debit card, obviously, because for these hawker food places, you know, your food is $2.50. If someone's going to charge you 3% of that for credit cards, <laughs> you know, your margins really get really low very fast. Right? Then COVID happened. And now I went and suddenly, you know, I'm, I'm on uh, GrabPay. I've connected my cards to GrabPay. I can scan the QR code when I'm buying my food and boom, $2.50. I don't need to pay for that anymore. So I think super duper exciting for Southeast Asia. I'm not sure if in Europe or in the US or in Australia, things are... The we don't have it here either. It's funny. People don't get the QR code and what it could enable. And in, even I have an experience like you, and I often take the example of open banking and, and moving from your screen to your phone. And I think that is cool for QR codes, how I, I just pop it onto another device. But that's how it is everywhere around you. I think it's a great example. And it's often first when you go and you experience in a day-to-day -day life when it come alive. And I actually have that for the digital identity when I came home to Sweden. <laughs> It's scary. Last time, 2019, we did a tour for Cashless Society and I just saw everybody using their digital identity all the time, like 20 times a day. And they have the most amazing thing. I'm, I'm not that good at admin. I shouldn't admit that obviously. But anyway, they have those mailboxes on their digital identity where all the important stuff is coming from government and, and from medical and everything is connected. You don't have a medical record at each doctor. It just sits there in one inbox with one digital identity. And I was like, wow, I really want this. And I, I can hear that that's what you're saying with the QR code. Wow, I really want this. And I think that is true innovation when it's leapfrogging and really solving friction for, for an end user. Yeah, and can you imagine? I think I think um, the central banks are trying to work together now. So we do have cross-border QR code standards that are coming out. I'm not sure how much it's been adopted for now, but I think it's super duper interesting. Imagine if you're traveling, all you need to do really is open up your camera and scan that, and then it can if it can link to your bank account. That's really amazing, right? super powerful for the end user. So to make payments much much more simple, we don't have to go to the ATM anymore. We don't have to go to, you know, one of those foreign exchange lockets and get some crazy rates. We can just, yeah, scan and then it gets deducted from your bank account. Pretty cool stuff. Yeah, it's really it's really changing that whole value chain of that service. It's really exciting. You just need someone that 
promote it and use it and have a good use case like the ones I used talking about Tesla like you there is definitely a need for it otherwise the business doesn't make sense it takes too big of a cut from the card company or something like that yeah exactly so cards is very expensive don't get me wrong I think card system extremely reliable is extremely secure they've built something across the board you know across the globe that enables you to do payments globally but also it's really difficult to access in terms of monetarily for a bunch of consumers and for people who are in markets like Indonesia or um, other parts of Southeast Asia, it's really hard to apply for a credit card. You, you're not going to be able to fulfill the requirements for a lot of these folks, right? Very strict. You have to have a, a job somewhere, minimum salary, there are regulations of how many cards you can have and all the likes. Uh, actually, a really funny story. A few years ago, I applied for a credit card with one of the banks and I got rejected. <laughs> I was like, wow, okay, can you imagine if someone like me gets rejected? How many uh, others? Exactly. People in the informal economy wouldn't be able to have access to this because they don't even have an employer. They don't even have, they can't print out a bank account history of XYZ, right? And and yes, you had to print it out at the time. It wasn't even something that was accessible digitally. It's really interesting this with credit cards and, and the friction of getting to do it or not. I was shopping presents. I had a family, I had to buy presents to to everybody in this family. So I had five presents, bought them all in the same shop, and then I asked, can you wrap them for me? And they, uh, they said, oh, this is, it's like, um, I think it was $7, $5 per, per present, or it was $10, whatever it was. But you get it for free if you have our credit card. And I had, <laughs> I had enough, so I was like, well, maybe I should get the credit card. <laughs> but I just looked at the form and I was like, no. So I, I took them home to wrap them myself. So it's, it's really friction. Like, when is it too hard to wrap the press? And how long does it take it to fill in the form? Or how, how easy can you bribe your 11-year-old to wrap them for you? But anyway. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Let's just jump into those five questions, Linda. Yes, let's jump in. So we're going to have a bit of quick questions for you. Or they might not be quick, but there's questions that we collected from people that follow us, our main audience, what they search for. So the first one is, who is a thought leader that has inspired you or perhaps even shaped your career path? I mean, definitely, I don't want to be cliche, but it's definitely Sheryl Sandberg. I don't know any woman who's not read Lean In at one point of their professional career uh, when they're thinking about, you know, moving up or uh, figuring out they can get to that leadership position. I think it's been extremely inspiring and I agree with a lot of the points. I think um, for us women, a lot of time we have to be uh, speaking up. We have to be part of that conversation. Uh, you, we have to be at the table, not on the sidelines. Mm. Yes, I totally agree with that. So what characteristics should a good thought leader have in your mind? I think there needs to be foresight. I think for a thought leader, you want to also inspire. You want to be kind of visionary, right? Uh, inspiration is extremely important. And being able to galvanize, I think that's why we like that Sheryl Sandberg book, um, Lean In, is because it really encourages and galvanizes a lot of women to be to want to participate, right? To want to stay in the workforce, to want to do something really great that's a little bit different rather than, you know, staying at home. Yes, that's so important to really encourage. I've seen that happen in my teams as well. People leaving the workforce and they're not coming back. So that's totally agree with that. So in terms of diversity, what is that to you and how do you think that's relevant in your business today? 
Yeah, definitely. Diversity is, you know, obviously there's gender diversity, diversity of backgrounds. I think it's uh, extremely, extremely important to have diversity in the workforce. So you can have different opinions. You can challenge um, certain ideas and you can look at it from um, different perspectives. I think, for example, having a female leader like myself, out of the four co-founders, I'm the only female. The other um, co-founders are male. Having that perspective where I'm saying, hey, we need to care a little bit more about women staying in the workforce. We need to care a little bit more about, you know, women who are going to move on and having families, children. You know, when we started out, everyone was a fresh grad. Now I'm seeing people getting married, having kids. I'm like, gosh, I'm getting really old. <laughs> uh, but I think having that, that diverse point of view is really important for a company to succeed. We want our females to stay in the workforce. Um, otherwise, we lose 50% of the brains there is in the in the country, right, uh, for to work for the company. So having, again, that perspective, I think, helps inform the companies to make better decisions. What do you think the role of diversity in the team has on product development? I mean, if you're thinking about maybe not in our products, the B2B product, a lot of B2C products, obviously, you're going to be um, catering for both males, females, you know, people of different uh, backgrounds as well. So that's definitely very important. I think this is really not to do with a, a tech product, but something that I always see on Instagram is people making fun of women's jeans, not having deep enough pockets. <laughs> <laughs> Male jeans have very deep pockets. And I'm like, yeah, that's right. I can't put my phone in there. I can't put my keys. I can't put anything. Like, what are these pockets? Or, right? We had uh, some female designers, they might realize this and do something different. So I, until now, I cannot fi uh, find a reason why these pockets are very shallow. That's such a good point. And it's so true. It's so true. I would love to ask in those quick questions, what about uh, you started then uh, women in tech in Indonesia? Is that correct? Yeah. That's right. Can you tell us a little bit about that and your vision for that? Yeah, I mean, look, um, I, I feel like I say all the time that I'm a unicorn of unicorns amongst unicorns because, you know, I'm female. I come from a background of having born, been born and raised in a small town in Indonesia. I didn't go to an Ivy League school. I didn't take really the path that's um, commonly taken by others to be able to get here. And being in tech, being in fintech especially, that's very technical. You know, having to talk about things like merchant risk engine. You see that there are fewer and fewer women who are participating on the tech side. So I really want to encourage them. One part is through education and through encouraging kids to understand tech. So what we're seeing is we're not really encouraged to do STEM, for example, at school. Uh, not a lot of girls are. We're not encouraged to be doing things that are technical. So, you know, we've had certain programs where we're coaching young girls to be able to make apps, uh, to be able to compete uh, in the world arena as well. I think that's super interesting. The other part really is to inspire those who are already in the workforce to stay in the workforce and to have bigger dreams. I mean, you never know. One day there could be the first CEO of a unicorn who took, who took the company to a billion dollars or more, right? I hope I'm just the beginning. There's this really amazing quote by Rupi Kaur. I don't know if you've heard of her. Maybe I'm butchering her name, but it's something like I stand uh, on top of a mountain. I'll read the quote. Or I'll, I'll say the quote. It says, I stand on the sacrifices of a million women before me thinking, what can I do to make this mountain taller so the women after me can see further? And I think it's 
it's very true and very amazing. You know, I'm here today. I was inspired uh, by my family. My grandmother was so strong. She was so amazing. She had to be strong because she had no one else to rely on. Uh, I remembered, you know, to make ends meet, she would do everything from cooking for people to, you know, selling cookies or cakes to sewing gifts for weddings um, to be able to survive. And that that was a, a big inspiration as to why I want to be here today. Right? I want to do better. I think had, you know, she said to me once, you know, in the old days, we weren't as smart, so we couldn't do what you did now. And I was like, it's because of you that we can be here. So I think that, that's what it means to me, right? And for me, I want to pave the way so that it's not an aberration or it's not one in a million or, you know, I think there are only, I think only 7% uh, co-founders are female or some, some really, really small statistics uh, of sort. I think 7% of all co-founders are female who've become unicorns or something of the sort. But, you know, I don't want that to be the case. I want people to look and be like, now the mountain is taller. Now my dreams are bigger. I, you know, I'm going to create a, another startup that will take over globally, right? And whatever, go to the moon, be the next Elon Musk. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for sharing that. So I'm going to go back to one of the quick questions. We had two left. So Tessa, what does a creative and innovative work environment look like for you? Creative and innovative. I think uh, what it looks like to me is leadership and managers can empower people to be independent, can empower people to make the right decisions by teaching frameworks rather than, you know, telling people what to do. I think, again, also workplace where the organization is relatively flat, where we allow people to have that freedom to decide what they want to do with their time, for them to not be chained to, you know, nine to five. I think we we have to acknowledge that people have lives. I was um, inviting my colleague, for example, one of my colleagues to a meeting and his his calendar was public and he he put it in one slot it was something like giving baby a bath and i thought that was the most amazing thing and, and i love that in a, a place like zendit but that's okay like you can go off and take care of your your baby if you want to during the workday as long as you slot it in then um We'll understand. We're not going to say, hey, you can't do that because you're on the clock. Uh, I think that that sort of environment actually will open up opportunities for more innovation and creativity. I'm so glad you mentioned that because that's how I look at it. The more balanced you can be and have a bit of procrastination and time away, then you get more ideas, not just sitting you know, too long hours. And you need to have inspiration from different parts of your life. To drive innovation. Yeah, exactly. I think it, if you want to, to be empowered at work, you have to be able to do other things. I think people often sort of sweep under the rug that people have private lives or there are other <laughs> things that you do other than work. I think it's important to acknowledge that. And yeah, if you want to have wholesome people to work for you, you have to appreciate uh, that they need that work-life balance. Yes, that, that question around work-life balance is always a hard one. And, and I think it's an utopia to think that you can find a balance. It's more to learn how to, to carry out the balancing act. And last of those fast questions, what are some key elements of great innovation leadership? Again, I think for leadership, it's about empowering people to be able to make their own decisions, to be able to come up with ideas. I think if you are going to be setting up an environment where people can have ideas, that's where innovation happens rather than an environment where, you know, we don't want to listen to you, that's stupid, um, do what we say, or, or, you know, to be really rigid. I think that's super duper important. 
having a leadership that's visionary, I think that that galvanizes people to the mission that we want to do as a startup, I think is extremely important in order to encourage um, innovation. You know, we say all the time internally, hey, we want to change payments for the better. We want to empower the next generation of unicorns. We want to change the country and hopefully the region to be able to, to move to the next level of economy, to move to a digital economy. And I think that galvanizes people to think about, okay, what else can I do to enable that within you know, my realm of what I do? Uh, so I think it's extremely important. Yeah, to feel empowered by a vision almost. Perfect. This has been super interesting. And sorry, I get so excited when I speak that oh, no. I never stick to the I never stick to the script. No, we shouldn't. It's good when you have a natural conversation. That's what we want. Absolutely, uh, <laughs> so. I agree. Fun conversations too, right? Exactly. <laughs> so we have just heard from Tessa Vijaya, COO and co-founder of Sandy. Thank you so much for sharing your insight and knowledge and your journey, your personal journey from living in the country to becoming one of the first unicorn females power woman in fintech. Thank you so much, Tessa. Yeah, thank you for having me here. It's been so fun. I love these conversations and, um, you know, really amazing topics we've spoken about today. Hopefully everybody else enjoys it too. And for you listeners, if you want to have more insight from Mita Shino's payments community, please visit our website on Mita.org. You will also find a summary from the round table there. You can follow us on Instagram and on LinkedIn. And if you like today's show, please don't forget to subscribe. We're looking forward to see you next time. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye.